since the Lord's Day after Thanksgiving, we've been seeing what Matthew has been telling us, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, about Jesus. That first Sunday, we looked through the table of genealogy, or as Matthew calls it, the book of genealogy, in which he lays out some important facts. Jesus is the Christ. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the heir of David. We really focused on that that first Sunday. But that really, the argument of that continues last Sunday, didn't it, as it goes to the end of chapter 1 and explains how this inheritance of the throne of David passed down to Jesus. Because we saw that two important points must be held. First of all, that Joseph is not his biological father, but that he is the one from whom he receives this Davidic right and throne. And so we spoke about how he became the legal father of Jesus, and yet Jesus is still being conceived by a miracle of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so again, all that we must keep together and remember, that's what Matthew is telling us, it's very important. And of course, last Sunday we saw the narrative of that, didn't we, as Joseph is fearful to take Mary as his wife. Obviously, he's going to break it off. He's a, he's a just man, and it's revealed to him in a dream that he doesn't need to, that this child that is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, that he will be a Savior, that he shall be called Jesus, that he shall save his people from their sins. So all that is glorious, revealed to us. We're thankful for it, and it changes the course of Joseph's actions, doesn't it? He intends to break off this, and now he goes through with it, understanding this important role that he plays, uh, just as Mary has an important role to play. And so again, what a promised blessing this is. This is Emmanuel. That's what Matthew tells us. This is the one of whom Isaiah was speaking, right? When he said, the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The seed of Abraham, the heir of David, the anointed one, the the Messiah, the Savior of His people. And all that brings us now to this interesting history that only Matthew gives us, but an important one uh, to think about and consider. And so I'm going to read it now. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And he had gathered, when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. As we think of this text this morning, I want us to think of three points that are self-evident in the text. First, the arrival of distant visitors. Second, the reaction in royal Jerusalem. And lastly, the worship of the glorious King. So beginning first with this arrival of distant visitors, it's an important uh, part of the Christmas story, uh, even if it happens sometime later. A beloved event, certainly we would say, uh, even if its reality messes up our nativity uh, scenes and plays because it happens out of sequence with what we normally consider. And so when you think about it for a moment, we often have the, the shepherds arrive and then a few minutes later the magi arrive. And it quite certainly didn't happen that way. Uh, Matthew tells you it didn't happen that way because he gives you distinct words that make it clear that it didn't happen in quite that way. For one thing, by the time uh, they arrive, Jesus is a young child. They're no longer at the manger. They're in a house. All these details are clearly here. Plus, there's another little factor that we would think of. When Herod is trying to make sure he eliminates this child, he decides to kill all children under two. Remember, Matthew told us he wondered when the star had first appeared. So that tells you about the time frame uh, that Herod was thinking of that he needed to eliminate to safely uh, get rid of this rival to his throne as he saw them, as he saw him. And so again, we see that. But these magi are important, but who are magi? What are magi? Now, oftentimes we have that translated as wise men. In the text we read out of the hymnal, I think that's the ESV, wise men. King James, New King James, wise men. I think the NASB uses the term magi. But what is this term? What does it mean? Well, it comes from the Greek word magos, which means magician. And it tells you something about how they were seen. These were uh, men that were uh, holders of knowledge, particularly with astrology, uh, with those kinds of uh, ways of thinking about things. They read the stars. They looked for signs in the heavens. Uh, they did all these things. They were from the Near Eastern culture, and they were incredibly influential. Since in that day, almost all people looked for signs in the stars and in the heavens. Uh, people thought these people were the foremost experts anywhere on the planet. And so Magi, what they said, what they interpreted, carried weight. They looked for things to interpret, signs to interpret. John MacArthur once called them kingmakers. And I think he's right about this, isn't he? Because no one could ascend to the Persian throne without the approval of the Magi's having read the signs of the heavens and knowing this is the man who is supposed to take the throne. So again, they were incredibly influential, incredibly important people. Now, the Lonida uh, lexicon translates Magi this way, men of wisdom who studied the stars. That's what we're saying, right? These are just men who were trained, who had some kind of knowledge. Uh, we would see most of it, in fact, almost all of it. We can't say all of it is bogus because... This star, this night, led them to Jesus. So it's not all bogus, but probably almost all of it was bogus. But again, this is what these men did. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you know about these men. Uh, you'll remember that uh, in the uh, exile to Babylon, uh, David was stationed among men who were to interpret signs and dreams. These were more or less magi. These were men who were seen to have the ability to read signs and as the, the will of the gods and so on and so forth. Now, if you remember, 
uh, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't trust any of them, does he? He says, you know, I tell them the dream and they give me an interpretation, but who knows if it's right? He says, I'll know you're legit if you can give me both the dream and the interpretation, right? Not just an interpretation of what I tell you, but tell me what it was I dreamed. Now, that will stop a con man dead in their tracks, won't it? Because they don't have any idea what you dreamed. But Daniel could do it, right? Daniel could interpret. He could tell a dream because God gave him the knowledge and he was able to interpret it. And so again, these were men who did what? They studied the stars. They looked for signs. They interpreted dreams. And Nebuchadnezzar noted that Daniel was uniquely qualified in this way, wasn't he? Because God gave these things to Daniel. Daniel was able to tell him what no one else could tell him because God was working through Daniel. And so Daniel was elevated. He was highly ranked. He was put above all these other people. Now, the story doesn't end there, does it? Because as we continue to read in the story of Daniel, there comes a time when uh, Belshazzar is is, uh, the co-regent, if you will, of Babylon, and he has some hubris one night, and he throws a party, and he wants the temple vessels with which to have this party, and you all know the the handwriting on the wall, right? You have been judged and found wanting. And no one can tell what this means. No one can tell what this means, except the queen mother who remembers, oh, there was a man that God had used mightily. You know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar trusted his interpretations. Go get that man. And Daniel comes and he gives the interpretation. He says, this very night, It's all over for the Babylonians, isn't it? This very night you will die, Belshazzar, this very night. And again, that is proven true and also important in the story of the Magi because Daniel's carried off now to the Meadow Persians. He's in Persia. And if you know anything about Magi, they were most noted, most prominent, most respected in Persian culture. And so again, we talk about these Magi, we don't know for sure where they came from. Uh, but likely they came from Persia. And so again, uh, this is interesting. Daniel goes there, has influence there. And so uh, how all this worked out, we're not quite sure, but, but likely these are the very kinds of magi, these readers of the stars, readers of signs, those who interpreted and gave information to kings. These were these men. When we sing, We Three Kings, we want to note these men weren't kings, but they were close to kings. They were the most trusted advisors of kings. And so again, uh, this is who has come this great distance uh, in this history that we're reading. So Daniel, who was placed in charge of the Magi, is an important help for us understanding who these were, who these people were, but it's also maybe an indication of how they knew to look for the star. Now, we don't know. J.C. Rowell wrote a, a long piece once about this, about how there's a lot of details we don't know about this story. But it seems very likely with Daniel's faith that he was telling the other magi about the one true living God. I'm sure occasionally they had questions like, Daniel, how are you always right in your interpretations? We're we're batting maybe one for ten. That's good enough to keep us alive most of the time. But, you know, you have the right interpretation. How? He would say, my God gives me the right interpretation. It's nothing in me. My God gives me the right interpretation. Maybe that allowed sometimes for witnessing to Magi. We don't know. We're, we're speculating, of course. But, but somehow they knew to look for a star that would lead them to the king of Israel. 
When they arrive in Jerusalem, they say, we're looking for this newborn king of Israel. They knew that this star would lead to that king. Now again, how, we knew, how they knew that, we're not sure. But it is interesting that they knew to be looking. And it might lead us to wonder what exactly had been discussed. Did God reveal this to them directly? Perhaps. Certainly He could do that. He could speak uh, to the Magi if He wanted to. But it's also possible that uh, they were uh, told by Daniel of uh, Balaam's prophecy of a star rising out of Judah. Right? It's very possible that, that he was telling them of these things and that God working through uh, Daniel had prepared for just this moment. However it was, God had prepared long in advance that they would know to look for this star, recognize its importance, and go. This was clear to us. Well, that leads us to ask what was the reaction of those in royal Jer- Jerusalem? You have these people in the Near East, in the Orient, these, these royal astrologers who are watching for a sign of the coming king, and when they see it, they immediately set on a long journey. What's the reaction in nearby royal Jerusalem? Where also, supposedly, they're watching for a king. They've been claiming they want one. In fact, they've been waiting for all these 400 years, since the days of Malachi, for a prophet. John comes. But this is even before that, isn't it? Even before John is on the scene. And so again, here is this event that is happening. How do they react in Jerusalem? Well, look how they react to the visitors. Matthew tells us that they caused quite a stir. He says that they went around asking a question, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. We saw it. We saw the star. We know that he's been born. Where is it? Now, to make sense for a moment of why there is commotion around this, we need to think, first of all, that the Magi weren't just asking this question once, but in the the Greek here behind this translation that we have, it says they were asking this repeatedly. They were going and asking this over and over, all over the city. They were asking people, do you know where this is? We've come to see the king. Do you know where he is? And, by the way, when they explained they'd seen a sign of a star in the sky, that would have spoken to everyone. For everyone in the ancient world believed that these things were signs and important. And so again, uh, this would have given people a reason to shake, right? That there is a king, that there must be one if, if these magi. And that's the third point, really, that the magi were considered experts on such things. So you wouldn't just say, oh, this is some crazy person, right? Some drunk wandering around the streets of Jerusalem who has no idea what he's talking about. You would recognize These are important men who have traveled great distances reading the stars and they believe that the king of Israel has been born. Well, you would recognize immediately that's a problem because if you were there, you'd say we already have a king. We don't like him. We want rid of him, but there is a king. So when you speak of a king who is born king of the Jews, we're not talking of someone appointed king of the Jews. The one of whom we're speaking now is born king. King of the Jews. That's a very different thing, isn't it? It means he has a lineage that gives him right to the throne, unlike Herod. We'll come back to that in a moment. And so again, Matthew describes the whole town as troubled. The whole town as troubled. And it says that. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He was troubled. But notice what the verse continues with. And all Jerusalem with him. All people were troubled. What does this mean? 
oh my gosh, we're a little nervous about the situation. It's not what it means. This is a word, terasso, that means to cause acute emotional distress or turbulence, to cause great mental distress. The entire city of Jerusalem and Herod, the king himself, were in distress over this. Now, this at first wouldn't make any sense to us, would it? We would think, wait a minute. They're being told their Messiah, who they claim to have long awaited, has been born, and they're in distress over this. How are we to make sense of this? Well, there are some important things when you think about, first of all, that this was a dangerous situation. People knew Herod. Herod was not a nice guy. Herod was a dangerous man. Herod was the kind of man who would get rid of anybody that posed any threat to his rule or reign. It was better to be Herod's pig, pet pig, than to be his own son. Why? He killed a number of his own children who he thought were trying to get the throne away from him. He killed wives. This man was brutal. You can read about it. He wasn't beloved by the people of Israel at all. In fact, they detested Herod. Well, why would that be? He had the title King of the Jews. He wasn't even a Jew. He was an Edomian. He was of Edom. That's of Esau's line. You say, well, how did an Edomite become King of the Jews? He was put on the throne by the Romans. He was best friends with Mark Antony, who had the right ear of Caesar. And Mark Antony put him in that position because he was placed over all that region. And he said, my friend Herod shall rule as king of the Jews. But he wasn't even a Jew. And so again, you can imagine, all we have to do is read back to Obadiah to understand the uh, hatred, if you will, between Edomites and Jews. And so the ones who were their enemies in their great day of distress and need, that's how Obadiah puts it, right? In the, the day of their greatest need, when the captivity was coming and, and Babylon was coming in and conquering Judah, what did the Edomites do? They helped round their brothers up. They didn't give them shelter. They didn't give them aid. They rounded them up and said, oh, here, Nebuchadnezzar, you missed a few. Here they are. God says that there'll be quite a judgment coming on Edom for that. And now an Edomite is king of Israel? My friends, to Jews, this was a slap in the face. They hated Herod. And he was a bloodthirsty and evil man. Now, the problem here is, again, they're hearing, oh my goodness, there's a rival to the throne. Right? There's a shaking of the peace now. What will Herod do to settle this? The answer is whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. If you doubt that, next Sunday we'll see what he does do to try to end any rival claim to the throne. But my friends, if your name in any way got associated with this thing he would have seen as a plot, right? This, this enemy that's trying to take my throne, whomever he is, you would have been dead in a heartbeat. And everybody in Jerusalem knows this. If they simply said, uh, we heard Rick Powell and he was speaking, and he was very excited that the Messiah might have been born. I'm on the list. I'm on the list. I'm going to be killed. That's as simple as it is. Everyone in Jerusalem was terrified at the situation that was developing here. The, the balance had been shifted, had been rocked, and everybody knew it. And this had been broadcast all over Jerusalem. Everyone knew about it. Everyone knew what Herod would do to settle this. And so everyone is scared. Everyone is scared. 
what does Herod do? He, he calls the, the, the scribes, the people of knowledge to him, and he says, what does the Scripture say? Where is the, the Christ to be born? Now, if you wonder, did they fully understand what the wise men were saying? Right there is your answer. As Herod's trying to wrestle with where this event might take place, he wants to know where the Christ is to be born. That's the anointed one, the Messiah. Herod knows exactly what's being said here. Where is the Messiah to be born? Where is the Christ to be born? And the answer, right out of the the book of the prophets, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem, this insignificant city, has had an important role to play twice, hasn't it? In giving us David, if you will, as king, and then again, whom David foreshadowed, the true king, his descendant, but his, his greater descendant, Jesus Christ. And so Herod understood exactly what's being said here, and he begins to plot and plan. And again, just read history about Herod, and you'll be, uh, you will not be surprised at already what would be going through his mind of how many people will I have to kill? What, what are the parameters I'll set on? Everybody I'll wipe out to make sure this rival is done away with. So he calls the wise men secretly. The wise men don't go to him. He calls them. Determined. Determining from them what time the star appeared. When did you first see this star? Now again, why is this an important detail? Why does it matter when they saw the star? He's trying to calculate what age he needs to set that all children under that age have to die. That's what this evil man is doing. If they had said three years ago, the text wouldn't say all children under two. It would say all children under three. They had said it took us five years to get here. It would be all children under five. It's the fact that they say we saw it at roughly a particular time and it's taken us nearly two years to get here. He says, okay, two years and under. If we kill all the children, we're safe. We're safe. This is the wickedness of Herod the king. So here's a moment that should be excitement in Jerusalem. But it's not described as excitement. It's mental anguish and distress. Fear everywhere. Herod distressed. The people of Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem, distressed over this news of their king being born. It makes no sense. Now again, we would say there probably is fear of Herod. That's probably what's driving much of the fear. But... It also says something, doesn't it, of Israel at the time, of Israel. It's easy to talk about waiting for the Messiah, but where is your interest in Him? Where is your excitement over Him? Where is any of this? Matthew tells us nothing of even a single person accompanying the wise men to go to Bethlehem. Now we might say, yeah, but that's an arduous journey. And I've seen all the nativity sets and I've seen the pictures. They had camels. Maybe the people there in Jerusalem didn't have camels. I don't know. But the truth is, it's just six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Six miles. And the scriptures record no one saying, let's go with them. Now again, it may very well be that people were thinking wisely that if we go with the wise men and show any sort of excitement at all, we're dead men. Maybe that's it. But we, should, we see nothing in the text of any excitement or desire to see the king, even out of the religious leaders. Nothing. They report back, oh, yeah, we've heard of these 
these wise men, we've heard of this whole thing, and yes, it should be Bethlehem so close, so nearby. Nobody seems like they want to go, even though it's such a short distance. Now, that brings us to our third point. Because nobody from Jerusalem seems to go worship the, the king, the king of Israel. And yet worship did take place, even if it's offered wasn't offered by those nearby, but for those who were from far away. God called those afar off to come and worship His glorious Son. Now, He continues to lead them, the text tells us, by a miraculous star. We don't quite know how that worked, but there is some interesting wording in, in this gospel, isn't there? About how the, the star, because it, it seems like it leads them from the east, but then it says it came and stopped, stood still, it says, over the place where He was born. This is some kind of miraculous work of God to lead them to where they needed to go. And so they come to the right place. And when the text says that they saw this young king, these men fell down and offered worship. And that's what it says. They offered worship. They realized his worthiness to be worshipped and praised. Now again, I would ask you to compare that to what's happening from those in Judea, right? What's happening from those in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem? It doesn't seem to be hardly to notice at all except for some shepherds. And yet here these come from so far away. The Jewish people seem to offer no homage at all according to Matthew. Very little, if any. And yet these Gentiles come to worship the king of the Jews. And Matthew says that they brought with them wonderful treasures, presenting the Christ gifts fit for a king. Certainly these are fit for a king, aren't they? To offer him gold, that is a gift for kings. In fact, I think uh, both the scriptures and history both tell us there's nothing a king likes more than gold. <laughs> you know, uh, They prefer to take your gold, but, uh, but they like gold. They like gold. And this king has offered gold, freely offered gold. Of course, frankincense, uh, an, an, an incense, if you will is offered to him. And some people have pointed out this represents not only his kingly role, but also his priestly role, that incense closely tied, if you will, to the worship, of a, uh, the worship work of a priest. Again, we could see that perfect if there was a, uh, a parallel for prophet, but myrrh, of course, associated with death and would remind us of the work that Christ came to do. As we heard in our song this morning, he was born to die, right? He was born to die. So just as God called an audience of shepherds on the night Christ was born, so now He called Gentiles to recognize the one to whom all history points. All history points. So I want to close, but I want to come back to the question of how the Magi knew about the significance of this star, how they knew to come to search out the King of Israel. In the end, we don't know the answer at all. I mentioned earlier, J.C. Ryle says, at the end, we just can't know. I think that's right. We can't know. But there are some things to remember out of this. First of all, God works in unexpected ways. The things that you would most expect often aren't the way God works. He puts to shame the wisdom of the world, right? Through His foolishness. Because as Paul says, the foolish things of God are greater than the wisdom of the world. What the world would call the foolishness of God. Of course, it's His wisdom. But again, Paul's making a point there. Um, we may not know how these magi knew to be prepared for the coming of a king, but there's a reminder that God works in ways that we don't imagine. 
don't even sometimes comprehend. He could work in ways that we don't expect. You can think of the entire birth story as this very thing. Here is the king of the Jews not born in a palace. We've made this point uh, many times over. Just outside of Bethlehem was one of the greatest palaces of the ancient world, the Herodian, which sat in between, if you will, Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Herod's palace, one of the most magnificent on the planet in that day. In fact, in the shadow of that Herodian, Christ was born in a stable. Some say a cave. The, the true king, born that way when the false king sits in a, a palace on a throne. Again, it's unexpected. The night that he's born, it's not dignitaries from Jerusalem who come, it's shepherds. The angels reveal it to shepherds born this day in the city of David is Christ the King. And here it's not the Jewish leaders who claim to be waiting for the Messiah, who clearly knew the Scriptures, who clearly knew. Uh, notice, it doesn't even say in verse 5 that when he asked this question of where the Christ would be born, it doesn't say, and so they read to him the scrolls. It said they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. They knew the verses. They knew the verses. Of course, most of the scribes and, and uh, the Pharisees uh, had the Scriptures memorized, the Old Testament memorized. But they knew these Scriptures. They would have said, we're waiting for this day. We're waiting for the day our Messiah will come and will we'll liberate us, or whatever they would have said. They were waiting for this day. And yet, here this day has come. No one seems to care. No one seems to care. My friends, that leads us to a really quick second warning. A warning that I think we see not only in this story, in this text, but also that we've been seeing over and over again in Hebrews. There is a danger to being near the harbor of safety and sailing right by. There is a danger to this, of being near where God is working and yet missing it. Near the blessings of what God is doing, yet not experiencing it. To have the revelation of God present, yet miss it completely. Isn't that what we see in these events? An entire capital city that would have said, one day our king will come. And Magi coming in and saying, yeah, that day is now. He's here. We've traveled a long journey for two years to come to worship Him. That's good. You know, great. Tell us how it goes. Six miles away. So it's amazing that while so many who had all these advantages of being so near, of having the history, having the verses, being given all these blessings, as Paul will say it in Romans 2, all these blessings of God, the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, having all these blessings, yet they missed what God was doing. And those that would have seemed to have had almost no advantages in Persia or Babylon, wherever they were from, in a pagan system, in a world that would have had very little knowledge of the Scriptures. Yet here are some that were so convinced this was the birth of the King of Israel that they traveled thousands of miles to come and worship Him. That irony was captured once by Spurgeon when he said, the far off near and the near far off. I think Hebrews warns us of this, doesn't it? Of being so close and yet so far away. Of having the revelation of God, having the word of God, being amongst the people of God, and yet missing the salvation of God. 
missing it, not hearing it, not realizing it. Whatever the case might be, there is a danger here. And there's a danger that we need to think about because we have all these blessings, don't we? We're in the church. Here we are today, gathered in the church of the living Christ. Here we have the Word. I mean, how many Bibles are just in this sanctuary? Either brought here by you or sitting in pews. How many Bibles in our homes? We have access to the Word over and over again. And here we are celebrating a season in which we say it all points to Jesus. Jesus is the reason for the season. It's a great slogan. It's also true. But my friends, you can walk right through this season, pay some lip service to Jesus, and miss Him completely. I fear much of the world is doing just that. Oh, it is about Christ. It's all about Him. Do you know Him? Do you trust Him? Do you have faith in Him? Has He delivered you from your sin? Oh, yeah, I've been, I've been in church many, many times. I've read the Bible. I've got a picture of Jesus from the Bradford Exchange or whatever it was, you know, sitting up on my wall. It's evidence. Those are not what saves. Trusting in Christ as Savior, that is what saves. And so, my friends, there's a danger we need to see in this of being so near all the blessings and missing it. Do you know Jesus? Do you know the Jesus that we celebrate this time of the year, the one who came into the world to save sinners, the one who came and gave his life as an atonement for us? Do you know him? Because, my friends, that's the only question that really matters.